When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We don't censor ourselves when we're making the film. We don't say that's going to be too expensive, that's going to be too hard to get. We just try to get every single thing we possibly can, and then we try to figure out how to pay for it. If it really gets bad, you know, we go crying to the broadcaster. <laughs> you know, you don't want us to cut this deep. Hello, and welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Hi, Isaac. So good to record with you again. I know. Two weeks in a row. <laughs> it's it's our it's our power hour. Um, so I know that you are a Stanley Nelson fan, but I am unfortunately not that familiar with his work. So I was hoping you could introduce us. Absolutely. So yes, as you said, that was Stanley Nelson we heard at the beginning of the episode. And he is an incredible documentary filmmaker. Really, at this point, kind of almost like an elder statesman of the form. Uh, Some of his recent films include Miles Davis, Birth of the Cool, The Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution, and uh, Freedom Riders. Um, My actual favorite film of his, uh, which we talk about in the interview itself, is Jonestown, Life and Death of the People's Temple, which is an incredibly intense documentary about Jim Jones and the People's Temple and both their political work in San Francisco and the kind of mass uh, suicide that they committed in their compound in in South America. Um, And it's one of the most powerful documentaries I've ever seen. He has a new film out now on Showtime, co-directed with Tracy A. Curry called Attica which uh, tells the story of the Attica prison uprising. And just as a little tease, what do Slate Plus listeners have in store for them this week? Slate Plus listeners have a very special treat in store. It's actually probably some of my favorite stuff from the interview ended up in Plus this week. We talk about the very beginning of Stanley Nelson's career when he apprenticed with William Greaves, who's maybe a somewhat forgotten figure now, but he was a truly incredible documentarian. He made this um, a bunch of really amazing, more straightforward documentaries, uh, but he also made this unbelievable experimental movie called Symbiopsychotaxoplasm Day One, mm. which if you happen to have a Criterion collection, uh, subscription you can stream right now and should it's it's bonkers but anyway we talk about that and then we had a very funny conversation uh, I asked him whether he was nostalgic about working with film at all now that he purely makes movies digitally and he had a very pointed and very funny series of answers to that question uh, having listened to that segment I will say it is really wonderful so listeners if you are not a Slate Plus member you can sign up today at slate.com slash working plus it's one dollar for your first month and Slate Plus members get zero ads on any Slate podcast bonus content on our show and other shows like Slow Burn and the Culture Gap Fest and you get full access to the articles on slate.com so that means no more paywall for you last but not least you'll be supporting the work that we do here on working. Again, it's $1 for your first month and you can sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. All right, now let's hear Isaac's interview with filmmaker Stanley Nelson. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today 
at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Stanley Nelson, thank you so much for joining us today on Working. It's my pleasure. You've done documentaries on a, on a wide variety of subjects. Jonestown, Sweet Honey in the Rock, Miles Davis, The Black Panthers. Your, your new documentary is about the Attica prison uprising of 1971. I have to ask, how do you choose the material or the stories you want to tell? I kind of look for stories that, that, that I can tell, you know, that stories that, you know, have people around who we can interview or, or, or footage or, or pictures or diaries or, or, or something to, to start out with so we can tell the story, you know, because we can't go and cast Denzel Washington, you know, and just, <laughs> and just make a historical film. So, so I really want to uh, make films that I can make. Yeah. Is there, I mean, I assume there must be periods of time where you're working on more than one project at once. You have a sort of on parallel tracks maybe, and then one of them kind of takes over. Is that sort of like when you're in the period between projects, is that kind of what it looks like? Yeah. I mean, I think that, that for us, maybe um, five or six years ago, you know, as documentaries started to take off, you know, with, uh, you know, Netflix and Hulu and, and ESPN and, and so many other uh, platforms that didn't exist when, when I started, um, you know, we, we met as an organization. And, and I say we met, you know, it was like three people. But, <laughs> but, but, you know, we started talking about, you know, whether we wanted to kind of pursue multiple projects or, or we wanted to do one at a time. Because until then, you know, we would do Freedom Riders and, and then it would be done and we would do the Black Panthers and then it would be done and then we'd do the next one. You know, we might be working in between on raising money or developing, but really we were doing one project at, at a time. And I think that, that what came out of this conversation is we said, you know, let's go for it. You know, one, you know, it, it'd be kind of fun and interesting to see see how it would work to do multiple projects. But two, you know, um, we could put a lot of people to work and that and, and that's part of, uh, of our mission, you know, that, you know, we run Firelight Films, which is a, a for-profit company and, and Firelight Media, which is non-profit. And the real mission of Firelight Media is, is to put more people of color in the business. When did you start working on Attica? How, how long ago did you begin on it? Maybe three or four years ago, we actually began that. Attica was part of the process. You know, when we sat down and said, okay, you know, let's develop stuff. That, that, what have we always wanted to do? Well, what's always been in the back of our minds? Let's, let's, let's come up with four or five, six projects and, and go out and pitch them. And, and Attica was, was one of the ones that, that, you know, we've always wanted to do. And so um, we went out and, and we were able to raise a little bit of money from First Look to kind of uh, produce a trailer. Uh, and we produced a trailer and then went out and sold that. And, and, and lucky for us, uh, you know, Showtime, you know, picked it up and, and have, have been a great partner. Do you remember what the initial spark was that drew you to wanting to tell that story? You know, it, it's a number of things, you know. I mean, one, you know, I, I felt that the story has never been told. One, I felt that it was almost 50 years on. And so if, if the guys are were 20, 25 years old that, that were in prison in the yard, you know, they're going to be 70 or 75. And I think that's, you know, still a good age, you know. You know, you can find people who, who, who are really lively, you know. As my parents said, one time my mother and father were talking, and, you know, they were in their 80s, and they were like, you know, oh, man, your 70s are okay, but your 80s are a bitch, you know. <laughs> so I've, I've always I've always thought about that. So you know, so so I felt that that they were that they, there were people in their seventies, you know, who who could talk. You know, there were a thousand people in the yard. There must be a bunch of people that were still alive. And then you know, from time to time, you know, in in different films, you know, in the news, I had seen footage. So I knew that that there was a certain amount of footage, and you know that you know a, a, along with with having witnesses made me feel that, that not only a story that, that hadn't been told and needed to be told, but a story that really could be told. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the the inmates in the yard. W- one thing about this film is it's, I think, entirely primary sources, right? I mean, every single person you interview is actually part of the story. We're not getting a historian or a prison sociologist or, you know, you know whatever, a Nixon biographer. It's only people who were there. And I, I feel like that's a hallmark of many of your films. Can you talk a little bit about your why you rely specifically on primary sources or, or what you get out of that? Yeah, they're better, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I just think that that you know, if you can, I mean, you know, in a number of films, you know, we have we've we've had to 
and not had to, but 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 we have historians in there, um, and 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 sometimes you know historians are great, you know. Um, but I think you know it, it's different, you know. We're, when we um, were shooting Attica and started to edit Attica, you know, we we did an assembly, uh, and we had, we had filmed one historian, and um, you know we had planned to film another couple of historians, and we had an assembly and we had him cut in, and it just didn't work, you know. He would be cut up against you know, somebody who had been shot, you know, and had been out in the yard for, you know, five days, you know, sleeping in the mud or whatever, you know, and and he's, you know, in it and he's, he was great, but he was very academic, you know, he was looking at it in an academic way and, and it, it just felt like, like, you know, maybe we, we don't need that. Um, one of the, the things that happened is that, you know, Heather Thompson is one of our advisors and she wrote the book Blood on the Water about Attica and, you know, uh, she won a Pulitzer Prize and she was one of our advisors and, you know, we were we were gearing up to shoot her and she was excited and it fell to me to make the phone call to Heather and say, you know, <laughs> you know, Heather, I, I think that, that, that we're, we're not going to interview you because I, I don't think we need historians in this film. And... You know, Heather was great. I mean, that that was the one thing. I mean, you know, I was like all up in my head. And Heather said, oh, no, if you don't need me, you know, that's fine. I mean, you know, I, I totally understand. And, and, and so we went that way. And I, I think it really works for the film. Yeah. I mean, a, a, another sort of similar only relying on primary sources is you don't use reenactments, which are a very popular tool in, in documentary filmmaking today. I, I don't think, have you ever used reenactments? That's just not your thing, right? You're not. I, I think we try not to do reenactments if we don't have to. You know, I, I've, I learned, you know, from the first time I ever did reenactments in a film about Marcus Garvey um, to, to kind of wait, you know, until the end to do the reenactments because, you know, you can shoot a whole bunch of stuff that you don't need, you know, and, and and afterwards, you know, you don't need them. You're like, oh, God, why did I hire that actor? Why did I get those costumes? And why did I do all this stuff? Because I really don't need it. You know, when we did uh, Jonestown, The Life and Death of People's Temple, we thought we would do kind of kind of reenactments, not really, but, you know, go down there to to Guyana and, and uh, you know, film palm trees blowing in the wind or whatever and, you know, film you know, where, where they had their, uh, their encampment. And um, we ended up not needing it. You know, the, the, the footage was just so incredible that we didn't need it. Yeah. Just to return to Attica, was tracking down your subjects, was that a, a challenge? I mean, you know, many of them are older. I assume, you know, some of them have passed away. They've returned to civilian life. I mean, part of what you do requires finding all these people, right? That was not not easy. You know, Tracy Curry, the co-director and the uh, co-producer of the film, uh, really tracked all the people down. And, you know, we, we had help. You know, Heather, uh, from writing the book, Heather Thompson really helped. Um, we hired Judy Clark, um, who's a prison advocate, as a consultant. And, and uh, you know, she knew all the, knows a lot of people involved in different things. And uh, she really helped. And, and then it's just a matter of convincing people, you know. Um, as Tracy said, you know, a lot of people would just be like, you know, who are you, you know, calling me, you know, out of, out of the blue, you know, some, some woman and, you know, um, talking about Attica, but slowly, but surely, you know, we started to get people committed and, and, you know, they, people have, have in some way stayed in touch. So, you know, people would then tell other people, you know, Hey, these people are okay. And then other people would commit and then more people and, and, uh, you know, we got uh, we got incredible people. You know, um, what was really surprising to me, though, is that there were so many people of what was called the Observer Committee. You know that that uh, the inmates at Attica asked that people come in and, and observe uh, the negotiations, and um, you know the, these were kind of third parties, and there were so many of, uh, of those people that were still alive because, the, the, by and large, those people weren't really young. You know, they were established people like uh, Clarence Jones, who was the uh, publisher uh, of the Amsterdam News and, uh, you know, others who, who were pretty established people in their professions. Um, and there were a bunch of them that were still alive. Right. You know, you interview people about very important and sometimes incredibly difficult parts of their lives. You know, your Jonestown documentary, people are talking about the deaths of their families, for example. And, and here in Attica, they're talking about abuse they've suffered or seeing their friends die. And, I imagine that part of the work is is gaining people's trust so that they'll they'll tell you that stuff so that they'll talk to you so that they'll open up to you. How do you do that? 
it's a multi-tiered, you know, process, you know, and, and especially with a film like Attica, you know, first we want to just talk to people, you know, and, and a lot of times, you know, I'll say to people, look, could I come talk to you in person? You know, I'm not going to bring a tape recorder. I'm certainly not going to bring a camera. You know, if you don't want me to, I won't even bring a pen, you know, <laughs> just, just, I just won't, you know, it would be good if we meet and, and just talk. And, you know, with Attica, like Jonestown, we said to people, We'll just talk to you, and then you can make the decision whether you want to be part of the film or not. And we won't try to go into our producer mode and tell you how good it would be for you to, you know, get this off your chest, and it would be great for you to talk about it for your own self, because, you know, sometimes it wouldn't be great, you know, <laughs> who knows? But that that let us talk to you, let us talk about what we want to do, and you think about it and, and um, make a decision whether you want to be part of it or not. Um, I think one of the things, the strange things that, that might have helped, you know, is the Internet, because, you know, now people can, you know, they get off the phone or even while you're talking, you know, you're clicking in the background, they're looking you up. And, you know, so that the past films maybe help convince people that we're not trying to exploit them. Were there particular questions you had about the story going in at the beginning or, or maybe ideas of kind of what the story was? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that we knew, or we thought that that we wanted the film to have a day structure, you know. So there was a five day takeover, and we wanted it to be day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. You know, that's what what we thought. You know, I mean, and if it didn't work, we were perfectly willing to change it, right? Um, and, and we also thought that going in that that the death of the guard Quinn, the death when when he dies on day three, that, that that's really a changing point in, in the story. Uh, and that also worked for us. What surprised you the most about this story as you reported it out? You know, I, I, th- I think everything was surprising. I mean, that we got such, such great people and, and uh, you know, that, that the footage is just so incredible. I mean, you know, I, I, I had thought that I had seen um, footage of the actual uh, takeover. I thought that I had seen that. And then we, we got the footage from New York State. It, it belongs to the state. And I think it was evidence in the trials or something. And, uh, and you know, they just sent us, like, everything, you know? I mean, they just sent us, like, okay, here's, here's, all, here's everything we got, you know, and they sent us everything. And then I think the first cut of the film, uh, the first kind of assembly, uh, we, we didn't use as much and then, you know, I'd, I looked at everything. So I looked at every single frame of footage and, and all that stuff. And I realized that the, uh, the New York State surveillance guys had left the mic open the whole time. So you could hear them talking, you know. And, and, and you know, they have one thing where they say, you know, they're looking through the lens and they're like, oh, that's the biggest, blackest, ugliest guy I've ever seen, you know. And there is the ugliest, blackest, Negro gentleman I've ever seen in my life. And then they, they say, you know, the, in the audio, you know, now we're going to shoot through the rifle sight. Shooting now through the 270 rifle scope. So that we have a telephoto lens and they put the, they put the lens of the camera up to the rifle sight and they're shooting through the rifle sight. So that now allows them to get a, a lot closer with the video, but it also puts all the inmates in crosshairs, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, that's real. I mean, that, so the inmates now, you know, they're panning across the yard and stopping at, at, at guys in the crosshairs from their uh, rifle sight. So all of that stuff, you know, I mean, I, I, I didn't really realize that, that, you know, in the beginning that it was like just so much and just so good and then it told this whole other story um you know while the inmates are in the yard and and, and doing what they're doing there are these people up on the towers that, that are looking at everything they do and talking about it yeah you know there's two kind of main i mean there's a lot going on in the film but it seems to me that there's there's two kinds of main threads almost storytelling wise there's the tiktok of those five days you know from beginning to end and then there's also you know, every now and then we zoom out to get the broader context, whether it's the broader context of the town, which is wholly economically dependent on that prison or the kind of law and order period of Nixon's presidency and the transformation of the nation towards law and order. And I'm just wondering about how you felt out switching between those two things, because one side of that story could very easily overwhelm the other, it seems to me. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that part of our, our, our biggest decision was, was when to leave the yard, you know, when to leave the prisoners in the yard and when to go outside and when to come back and how to do that. Um, one of the, the, the things that we wanted to do was just, you know, uh, just start out, you know, you know, it, it starts out, you know, with the guy hitting the guard and, and, and the sirens going off. And, and that's how we started um, at about 17 minutes in or so. We flash back to kind of, you know, what caused the riot. Um, and we kind of, we have this whole section of what caused the riot, the prison conditions, the town. And that was one section. And we, you know, we moved it at the beginning and it didn't work. And then we moved it five minutes in and it didn't work. Then we moved it 10 minutes in and it didn't work. And, you know, and we just kept moving it around. Um, but, you know, a lot of times I've learned from films that, you know, a lot of times, you know, you film and you talk to a lot of people about the setup for the film, but it kind of doesn't work to set it up, you know, because if you're making a film about Attica, you want to see Attica, you know, right. you don't, you don't want to mess around. So, um, finally, you know, we, we found an incredible transition where, you know, L.D. Barkley says, you know, you know, the, the conditions, uh, the riot here was just not spontaneous, you know, uh, there, there were things that caused this riot. It seems to be a little misunderstanding about why this incident developed here at Attica, and this declaration here will explain the reasons. And then we go back to tell you what caused the riot. Yeah, you mentioned there, you know, taking us outside the prison. One of the things you do is provide the perspective of the families of the hostages who are often, well, some of them are quite hostile to the prisoners and their demands and others are not. Actually, others are are somewhat sympathetic. Can you talk about the decision to kind of include that voice and to kind of flesh out that other part of the story? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's something that that we wanted to do from the beginning. You know, Uh, we wanted to talk about the townspeople. I mean, the, you know... um, you know, I mean, not to give away the story, but, you know, they were murdered, too, just, just like the prisoners, you know, um, and they were caught up in this situation just like the prisoners. Um, and, and so they were really part of the story and we wanted to, to tell their story. Um, that was in, in many ways, especially for the families, was, was, was tragic, you know, just as in many ways, just as tragic as the prisoners. So it was essential. Uh, for us to tell their story. And, and luckily, you know, I mean, the, the question was, are we going to find people to talk? Um, because, um, you know, the, 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 the town of Attica is, is 250 miles from New York. It's in, in upstate New York in the middle of nowhere. Um, if anybody's been up to those kind of places, they're, they're like you're, you're in Alabama or somewhere. You know, they're, they're as racist as, as the Deep South. And, um, uh, but, but, but we found people to talk. Um, you know, part of the reason maybe is because in some ways they identify with the prisoners because their loved ones were in many cases killed at the same as the prisoners were killed. Um, and so their animosity towards the state is almost as great as the animosity of the prisoners. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Stanley Nelson after this. listeners, we want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem or tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Stanley Nelson. Many uh, documentaries these days get released as a miniseries or structured as a kind of six episode or eight episode thing, whether they should be or not. It seems like a lot of stuff gets pushed in that direction. I I have to ask, was there pressure to move this into this realm that you had to resist? Was it always going to be a feature or is, you know, it was always going to be a feature. Um, you know, may, I think I'm, I'm just kind of stupid, you know, because I, you know, I, I went to film school and, and I, and I look at these things as films, you know, and, and, and I think that's, um, on one hand, it's really great because, you know, I don't look at them as news, right? I don't look at myself as a journalist. I look at myself as a filmmaker. I'm trying to make a film, you know, a whole, uh, the bad part of it is, you know, I'm not getting the big money because <laughs> I'm not making six hours or eight hours, um, yet, but I'm going to start, you <laughs> know? 
<laughs> but you know, I think that we, we always thought of it as a film. I, I think that that look, you could definitely play it out. You know, you could definitely do a lot more and and, and extend it out. But as you kind of hinted at. You know, so many times, you know, you're, you're watching these series and you're like, oh, man, would they just get to the point? You know, like it's, they, they just seem to be circling around, you know, circling around the dollar. At what point are you beginning to edit material together into kind of drafts of what the movie or parts of the movie might look like? So as we do the interviews, um, we get transcripts of the interviews like right away, you know, next couple of days. And, and, and we're marking the transcripts as we go, you know, so that we're marking, you know, we're just pulling stuff, you know, and, and we're pulling stuff very liberally, you know. So, you know, the, the interview is, I don't know, two hours long. You know, we want to pull half hour of that material. And finally in the film, you know, Five minutes of it will, you know, ten minutes will make will make the film of any one interview. But we do try to as we're, as we're going, we try to you know read the transcripts and cut it down, you know, and 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 also you know that we can tell kind of you know some stuff that's really good, and then we can try to ask other people questions so they kind of play off that. You know, we want to we try to get the footage as soon as we possibly can so that we can ask questions about the footage. You know, so that people can talk about the things that they see, you know, in, in the footage, you know, um, you know, for example, you know, we show the hostage families, um, you know, outside the prison walls, you know, and, and they're just waiting for five days, you know, in there, what, what happened. And, and, you know, and we have somebody describe that, you know, that, that they're outside and they're crying and weeping and, and just, you know, like, like look terrified. And they're just, you know, they don't know what the hell's happening um, inside the prison. And, but, you know, that goes along with the fact that we knew that that footage existed. Um, so that, you know, it's, it, it's all kind of, you know, simultaneously we're, we're, we're doing a whole bunch of different things. You've done a couple of documentaries about uh, musicians. Do you think of editing musically? Is it about rhythm to you? or? Yeah, yeah, it's all about rhythm. One of my greatest collaborators, uh, the editor, Louis Erskine, just passed away uh, in, I think, May or, or, or June. And, you know, he, he started out as a music editor, and uh, we both were huge music fans and would trade music with each other and stuff like that. And, and uh, you know, it, it's, all about, it, 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 it's all about rhythm. You know, we had a, an assistant editor on a, on a project, you know, and, and, and I would constantly say to her, you know, like, just get with the rhythm, you know? Like, I mean, like, what are you doing? You know, it's like, you know, can't you, you know, just feel it, you know? I mean, you can feel it. You can feel when you're out of rhythm. Just like, you know, if you go into a party and somebody's dancing off the beat, you, you know, you're like, what? Well, it's interesting because, you know, you the, the film does use both original composed music and, and licensed music from the time. Um, how do you approach scoring your films and, and how you want to use music as it goes along? I think, you know, it, it, different films, you know, uh, hopefully, you know, we think about, about very differently. Um, you know, um, I think we only have two songs in Attica from the times, you know, but one of the things we did, you know, it, Attica happened in 1971. So we got the, uh, the billboard chart of pop music and of R&B from like 1969, 1970, 71, 72, 73. And uh, we had the great uh, uh, associate producer, uh, Shoshana, and she put together a playlist and we just listened, you know, I, I would listen to that over and over again. Uh, most of the songs, you know, we, we, we ended up not using but, um, you know, it was great mood setter and, and great to think about. Right. You know, we had a music supervisor on the show a couple months ago. So I also know that licensing those tracks can be its own uh, form of hell. Yeah, it's hell and double hell because it's <laughs> hell. And then you got to pay for the you got to pay for hell. You know, <laughs> so my feeling is is for everything, you know, all the archival music included. You know, we we don't censor ourselves when we're making the film. We don't say that's going to be too expensive. That's going to be too hard to get. We don't. We don't do any of that. We just try to get every single thing we possibly can, and then we try to figure out how to pay for it. You know, um, if it really gets bad, you know, we go crying to the broadcaster <laughs> and say, you know, you don't want us to cut this, do you? But you know, we so. In, in in I don't know, you know, forty years of making films, maybe two or three times. 
we've had to cut stuff because it was just it was just ridiculous. Um, but but most of the time, you know, we can, we can figure out something and how to pay for it. There's also um, subtle but immersive use of sound effects uh, uh, in the film. So when they talk about the sirens going off, we hear the sirens going off. In the nighttime footage, we hear crickets, which I, I assume is a sound effect put in. Um, how do you approach that? I mean, because you could go too far with it, right? And in, in such a way that it sticks out as opposed to kind of bringing us into the world. How do you, how do you find that balance? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that, that for me, I, I try to, you know, limit it as, as much as I can. You know, I, we try to give a feeling of it. We try to, to give it some ambiance, and, and, um, but be really subtle. And sometimes, I mean, it just, it just really, just really, really works, you know. Um, you know, just little things, you know. I mean, there's, there's a, a shot where, you know, early on, the, uh, the National Guard and, and, and law enforcement are like, you know, in, in the prison, you know. And, and uh, I mean, outside the prison. And, and these guys are lying on the ground just waiting for something to happen. And he's beating his, his kind of stick against the concrete, you know, the guy. And it's just, you know, really low and really, you know, most 99% of the people won't notice it. But it's nice, you know. It's, it's, just, it's just nice, you know. Um, when you hear some of the, the crickets are really low because, you know, that's the scene. If any of you gentlemen own dogs, you're treating them better than we have been treated in the last year. And, you know, the, the sound editors, what they do is they'll put it, you know, and we'll say, okay, you know, like, just put it where you think it should go. And then and then when when we mix, you know, we say, you know, we're, we're really 90% of what we're saying is take that out. You know, take that out, take that out, lower it, lower it, lower it, take it out, take it out. Oh, that's good. You know, maybe a little more, but take that out. Take, you know, so it's a lot of adjusting in the mix. And, um, you know, we've been working with the same sound guy uh, for years. And, uh, I, you know, I, I really trust him. You know, if he says something is, is too loud or, or, you know, he knows what he knows what, I, what I'm going for. It sounds like a lot of your process is kind of putting in as much as possible and then looking at it and then taking out everything that you feel doesn't belong like you know from the assembly to the next cut or with the sound effects or uh, you mentioned having a historian in that you then pulled out it, it sounds like that's an important part of how you work i think that the process for me of, of of editing a film is taking stuff out and cutting stuff down right that's the process you know we don't want to go back you know and and oh could you go back and put this in now you know that happens that happens a lot. But really the process is, you know, you start out here, you cut it down to here, you cut it down to here, you cut it down to here. And you're like, OK, good. We're done. Your uh, Jonestown film is a very important documentary to me, actually, as a as a writer and journalist. And, you know, I just I just think it's a it's a total I don't know. It's a it's an incredible film. It is also a very difficult film. Uh, to watch. I think I was kind of really almost physically upset for days after it. Uh, it may have even featured prominently in a therapy session. <laughs> and, you know, Attica, obviously, is a very difficult story. The injustice these men face, the efforts they go to overcome it, they're literally, you know, slaughtered by the state, which never admits wrongdoing. What is it like to, I mean, you have to live with this stuff for so much longer than your audience and you have to pour over these clips and these stories again and again and again. I'm just wondering how the kind of emotionality figures as part of your process and how you kind of, you know, protect yourself so you can get your work done. I think I, I just go into filmmaker mode, you know, and I'm just trying to make the best film I can. And, and, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm making a film, you know, um, I'm friends with, with, with a filmmaker who made a very, 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 very personal film a long time ago, you know, about herself and her mother and, and, and other, other things. And um, she referred to herself as the protagonist, you know, and, and you know, that was the way she got through it. And in some ways, I, I'm, I disconnect, you know, I'm just really trying to, to make a film. Um, I think that, 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 you know, Jonestown was really extra hard because so many people lost their families, you know, and, and, and because we were speaking to people, it meant that they were the ones that survived. And so many people blamed themselves for their families becoming part of Jonestown. And for some reason, at, on, on, that, on that day, they, were, they, they just weren't there. But their families were, and their families perished, and they didn't. 
Um, that film was really, really hard. Um, and I, I think that, 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 that this film, you know, we, we've, we've done some things to protect ourselves. You know, when we, we screened the film um, uh, two nights ago, at the Apollo, you know, for like the our premiere, and and we had a, a psychologist there, and then we announced that, that we had a psychologist there for anybody, you know, who needed to talk, uh, as as part of it. But, you know, um, after the screening, you know, we had a reception and we were talking, and somebody said, you know, I don't even know what to call that. It's it's like it's like not a film. It's like an experience, you know. <laughs> and I thought that I thought that was a good description, you know, because it's really. I don't know. It's like, it's really an experience. Well, Stanley Nelson, thank you so much for joining us on Working This Week and to give us the experience of uh, talking to you about your process. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Isaac, that was such a great interview, and I'm so excited to get into it with you now. Um, I loved what Nelson was saying about making things that he can make and like not being able to hire Denzel Washington and stuff, because I think it's something that a lot of creatives, at least in my peer group, have to think about because we don't necessarily have access to the kind of resources that would be required for a blockbuster movie or something giant in that way. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I I don't think it's just your peer group, Karen. I mean, I think in almost (laughs) every creative endeavor, you wind up having fewer resources than you think is ideal. You know, whether it's money or how many people are working on it with you or time or whatever, you know. And for me, this was particularly true when I was directing, you know, low budget theater in basements or whatever. A lot of the real creativity comes from how you take those limits and turn them into strengths you know like how do you make it look as if the limitations that you have were actually chosen by you and are totally intentional and this is in fact its ideal level of resources you know um Mm -hmm. that to me is where a lot of fun lies do you remember a specific example of something that you did in your work like that Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, all of my work was kind of, not all of it, not, but a lot of my a lot of my work was kind of like that. But, you know, I did this show um uh, at Under St. Marks, it's a wonderful small low budget theater and we we had really almost no money. And, you know, it was a play about children and it sort of had this very childlike point of view. And one of the really fun things was working with the designers to create something that felt like a storybook because not only did that give it an aesthetic, but that also meant that you could like basically make the sets out of painted cardboard and it would actually look right <laughs> because it would look like it came out of a children's make-believe world. You know, it's a, it's a lot of stuff like that. That's awesome. One of the things that Nelson talks about or, or the, that you talk about in your interview is the difficulty of finding a topic to focus on, which I feel like is not usually something that's easy to do. Like even talking to Dami last week, I felt kind of the same thing. You've written two books now, both of which have pretty, I think, like, straight ahead topics in terms of like you can pretty clearly define what both of your books are about. How did you decide on those topics of things that you wanted to devote yourself to? That is a really great question. I ask this question of a lot of guests I'm working, particularly novelists, because it's like, how do you know that this is an idea that's worth spending two to three years of your life on, as opposed to one that mm-hmm. should be a short story or an essay or a poem or a play or, or you know, whatever? 
Um, one thing that really helps in nonfiction book writing specifically is that you have to write a proposal almost all the time before you mm-hmm. get the money to make the book. So by the time you've done that, you've already spent a few months deeply engaging with the subject matter. And you probably know by then whether you're going to get sick of it or not and whether there's enough mm-hmm. juice to keep you going. And you probably have some idea of what the overarching story is. And that's really helpful. Um, I've written proposals for books that didn't sell. I've thought about doing books and looked into them and then abandoned the idea with the world only spins forward. You know, Dan and I realized it was a book because there was just so much more good material than we could put in the original article that we wrote for slate, the oral history of angels in America that we did, you know, the first draft we turned into Forrest Wickman, who's the culture editor at slate. I think it was like 40,000 words long or something bonkers like that. Uh, And so a few of us, you know, Dan and Forrest and a couple other people and I, we worked to trim it down to like 15,000 words. And we didn't even get to report on everything we wanted within that 40,000 words. So to make the cutting easier, you know, we were just sort of yelling at each other. It'll go in the book, you know, as we were cutting (laughs) stuff. Uh, And then it happened that we did sell the book Um, with the method. You know, that was something I've been fascinated by since I was in high school school, but it hadn't gone super deep into before I thought to write a book about it. And then once it became clear that the scope of telling the method story would take a full century, you know, mm-hmm. uh, on two continents, um, and that it was going to move from theater in Moscow to theater in New York to the movie industry and American pop culture, then the struggle mm-hmm. became, is it too much for one book? Um, mm. And that's fun, actually. That's a much more fun <laughs> struggle than do I have enough material for a book? You just um, were saying that in the process of writing a proposal, you sort of get an idea of how you're going to structure the final work, which is something that Nelson talks about as well, like figuring out how to structure all this documentary footage that they have. I will say that I'm usually someone who puts everything, who needs to have everything in order from the start, as opposed to being able to look at a bigger jumble of things and then putting them in order. Um, what is your general process like? Like, do you, how much change is there when you get into the actual work of it? What is the process of creating a structure to work within? I have a couple of different answers for that, actually, because I think it kind of depends on the project. But I will Mm -hmm. say that I'm always trying to get to the place where I am starting at the very beginning and moving forward step by step until I get to the end. You know, like that's ideal. Yeah. The thing that you're talking about is really the ideal for me. I I know other writers who are like, well, you just start with whatever the wherever the juice is. You just start there <laughs> and then you assemble a bunch of fragments and then you connect those things together and boom, you've got that's just that's just not me. You know, um, particularly for something like the method where it's a history work and I'm citing a lot of stuff and I'm consulting hundreds of sources and, you know, uh, I'm quoting things and I want to make sure I'm not plagiarizing, you know, mm-hmm. the chapters had to be worked out pretty carefully before I actually started writing them. And so they were outlined pretty carefully. And I also knew the story was going to move forward in chronological order for the most part. Um, And so I would outline each chapter before writing each chapter, but I did move through the chapters in the order they appear in the book. Um, With The World Only Spins Forward, that just wasn't possible because we were interviewing people when they were available to be interviewed. And there were two of us Mm -hmm. and we were sort of dividing and conquering the chapters. So in that case, we assembled almost all of the material. We weren't quite done with the interviews when we started writing it, but we were close to done with the interviews and we had thousands of hours of stuff or whatever. Um, and then Dan and I hammered out what each chapter was going to cover and what it was going to be about and who was likely to be in it. And then mm-hmm. we, you know, went into that huge bundle of material and started divvying it up. One of the fascinating things about the Nelson interview and also what you're saying about working on your books is having to take things out and figuring out what you can cut out in a way where the story won't suffer for it or like what's not necessary, even if it is something like that you personally find interesting or valuable that you want to keep in. That process is the worst. I want to hear you on this for a second because it sounds like it's a source of some pain for you whenever you have to be like... Oh, God, got to cut this shit. (laughs) Usually it's when I'm trying to figure out what I have to lose or keep in an interview. Because when you're talking to someone creative, most of the time, if you have done an interview that requires cutting, it means they've been very generous with what they've told you. Totally. And in those cases, it's the worst to be like, oh, I don't like I don't want to cut it. I don't want to cut this story. Um, 
like there's a there are a couple of interviews that I've done um, where like they've told like an anecdote that just hasn't been relevant to, for instance, like the movie that they're promoting or whatever, and mm-hmm. that has got to been cut for basically word count in the end, which I always like sort of hate because it's like. If people are on this page, they're going to read it anyway. Or at least that's my impression of it as someone who's not an editor. Um, But yeah. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, the first time that uh, uh, I interviewed Errol Morris for Slate. He's he's a wild man. (laughs) We should also say that Karen and I met for the first time in person because we were both interviewing Errol Morris on a junket. And we had back-to-back interview slots. And that is actually when we first met IRL. But, you know, the first time I interviewed him was for Slate and he wasn't promoting anything. It was just about, like, true crime. I just wanted to talk to him about the phenomenon of true crime. And our, our interview wound up taking two days to do because we didn't get through all my questions he was like well just call me tomorrow at the same time we'll talk (gasps) some more and so obviously like half less than half of the things he said is in that interview and that that was really hard I agree interviews are really hard to me with the book or with a larger project one thing that I take from the film world is you know I start with an assembly right it's like you start with here is everything that could Mm -hmm. possibly go in the final project that I think is useful and interesting. And now we're going to look at all of that. And it's like, when do I get bored or when is this not (laughs) actually serving the point or whatever? And you and the editor Uh start to work that out. I find when I do that, the cutting gets less painful. That doesn't make it not painful, but when you start to develop a clear idea and so you have a sort of rubric of why something stays or goes, um, Mm -hmm. uh, then it, then it gets better. But also, you know, Twitter is also really fun for, you know, posting the screenshots of stuff you cut, right? Like I, I remember That's I interviewed true. Kim Stanley Robinson and he's a huge Philip Glass fan. And so at some point we just mm-hmm. started talking about Philip Glass. I knew that was <laughs> never going to go in the eventual slate piece, right? Yeah. But like I just wanted to talk to him about it and, uh, and stuff like that. That's great. And kind of on the end of the equation, um, Nelson also talks about getting like outside pressure, whether it's from, I guess, studio execs or higher up creatives, basically anyone who has a say over money, I think, <laughs> is the bottom line. Um, have you ever had a deal with anything like that? Because I guess we, we all have to sort of deal with it in, within our own like yeah. jobs and lives. But this is definitely in, in a creative field. It's definitely like slightly different. I mean, I have never had a studio exec come to me and be like, <laughs> we are spending millions of... D-. If only I had that problem, the studio exec <laughs> coming to me and being like, we have given you millions of dollars and now it has to be that way. I mean, that would be great. Uh-huh. Um, but I will say that as a freelancer, has this ever happened to you, Karen? Sometimes an editor reaches out to you because they want you to make a specific argument in their magazine or website or whatever. Mm-hmm. They actually have the, uh, they kind of have a pretty clear idea of the opinion they want you to have. Mm -hmm. And they're shopping around trying to find a writer who has that opinion already so they can get that piece. Um, That's a really dangerous situation, I find. What I try to do in those situations is be very forward to be like, hey, this is actually my position on whatever it is. It's not exactly the same as yours. Are you cool with that? If not, no Mm -hmm. worries. And usually that clears the air, but sometimes they'll, accept it anyway and then in the revision try to push it more towards their original idea i had to actually pull a piece Mm -hmm. about nine months ago because that was happening so so like that's my most unpleasant experience of it but i will also say you pitch an interesting idea or a big piece it's always going to be a little bit of a negotiation with the editor about what the final thing is going to look like because they have to make sure that people are going to click on it and they're not running a charity they need some people to click on it and they need them to read it from beginning to end and then they need them to share it and that has certain Mm -hmm. those are priorities and those are real and those are legitimate and we shouldn't be too contemptuous of that like Dan Kois asked me to review the Broadway play Network directed by Eva Van Hove which is an adaptation of the Patty Shea film from the 70s and I think I had too long to prepare for it or something because I just did a lot of research and then I went totally rogue on writing it and I sent him <laughs> a I sent him a four and a half thousand word uh, piece so like almost three times what he asked me to write and it was like a meditation on the rise of the news media and the news anchor and the politician and network the original film and then and then its relationship to the Broadway show and, and, and on and on and on and on and on and it was actually like a good smart interesting idea for a longer piece and i i think uh uh and dan (laughs) very kindly said hey this is great but this is just not gonna work for slate like this isn't right for us this isn't right right for our 
readership. Uh, it needs to actually start here about halfway through. So can we just like ditch this first half? Let's look at this second half. Let's rewrite it. Let's focus it. You know, let's work on it. And you know what? He was right. He was absolutely right. It, mm-hmm. That piece would not have done well uh, or been right for that environment. And some of the stuff that got cut wound up in the method years later. So, you know, Great. nothing's nothing's ever lost. Yeah. I don't think I've had exactly the equivalent experience. I've I've been... I guess more lucky in that regard. Like I have had um, when I was freelancing a few years ago, I, uh, to be clear, I am freelancing again now, but I'm talking about a past experience um, where the, an editor reached out being like, hey, like we want like this kind of story slash explainer, like would you be able to do this? And luckily I was like, yes, somebody needs to say this. And so I was willing to do it. But there's also been cases where like in a previous job, an editor like one editor didn't like a show that everyone else on the site liked. And he was like, somebody should write that like, this isn't very good. Like this, this should be taken down. And he was like trying to convince people to write it. And we were all like, we all like the show. Like none of us are gonna write this. Amazing. That is our show for this week. Thank you so much for such an enlightening conversation. I feel like I have almost asked you to do your own secondary interview now in a more intense way. (laughs) Yeah, totally. If you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed taping it, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and then you will never miss an episode. And now let me tell you how awesome a Slate Plus membership is. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, full access to all the articles on slate.com, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and How to Do It, and it's only $1 for the first month. Thank you so much to this week's guest, Stanley Nelson. And thanks as ever to our splendiferous producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with Oliver Berkman, author of 4,000 Weeks. Until then, get back to work. What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.